0: Hello, everybody. Uh, I'm so excited. Thanks for tuning in for this episode, episode five of uh, the Undefeated Underdogs uh, podcast. I'm Sharath, your host. And today I have a very special guest who's a very dear friend of mine. And he's he's one of the kindest uh, founders I know in my circle. Uh, Welcome, Warren Schaefer. Thanks for joining the pod.
1: Very excited to be here. Thanks for having me, Sharath
0: absolutely let me let me give a brief intro about warren uh for folks who don't know him uh warren is a seasoned entrepreneur he's a 3x founder he's a dad to three kids which is you know something i want to discuss later uh he's a writer he's a first generation immigrant uh which i want to cover as well he built three companies and sold uh to giants like uh jiffy and medium and he's raised over like what 12 million dollars with yeah. world class investors like you know A sixteen Z, Initialized Capital and more. So uh he's, his resume speaks for himself and he's he's one of the uh, one of those those founders who just you know undersell themselves and you know focus on the mission and the vision of building a company. So I'm actually very excited to talk to you Warren and appreciate your time. Uh thanks for being on the part.
1: Thank you so much for the kind introductions, We're awesome. uh So I'm such a big fan of yours, and excited to excited for everything that you're building. And uh, let's let's jump into it. Whenever you're ready.
0: Yeah, awesome. Yeah. So I do have some questions. I want to like you know cover some topics. Uh, let's start with uh, so last time. So by the way, for folks who are listening, I met Warren in person for the first time a few weeks ago in SF when I was traveling there for business. And, uh, one of the things he mentioned when we were chatting was, uh, he's, his parents immigrated to the U S you know, long before and at, at a very young age, and I want to like dive deeper into that story. Uh, tell me more about like, you know, how the whole thing went and you transitioned from, you know, wherever it is, is, it, is it France if I'm not wrong? Uh,
1: my, my parents immigrated from
0: Eastern Europe, from Romania. Uh, oh wow! I was born. Yeah, so I was actually born in the states, but
1: uh, but they were not, and so uh, I'm I uh, have a lot of empathy for people who are who are new to the country and who are first generation or whose um, parents parents uh,
0: right. Kid.
1: And sure, I should clarify: we became friends through Twitter, so we didn't we didn't just become fast friends a few weeks ago. We, uh, we oh yes, we, first all, I feel like I become friends with via Twitter, so.
0: That's oh yes, your, yes, 100%. absolutely, absolutely. It's one of those moments I I kind of like you know uh, remember for myself because those who I I interact with Twitter and those yeah. who I meet in person, it's very rare that they're actually the same person. Either they just like you know uh, yeah. they're a different personality. But you're one of them who exactly, in fact, in fact, as a matter of fact, you actually kind of exceeded my expectations of you know uh, who you are. Uh, in real life. So, so yeah, I mean, you know, tell me about that, like the story, uh, you know, your, your, your childhood, how you get into, like, got into entrepreneurship, uh, your roots, uh, about your parents and whatnot.
1: Sure. Yeah. Uh, so, so as much as my, my parents left Romania, uh, in the seventies and Romania was a communist country and had a pretty notorious dictator at the time uh, named Ceausescu who ended up getting executed. Uh, but, but they left before that happened. And when you tried to leave a communist country, you basically couldn't take anything with you. So hmm. they left. And, uh, my, my father was an electrical engineer. My mom was a that studied music at a conservatory and was a pianist
0: and, right. um, well. but ended up in the stage with, with very little,
1: um, they had, I have an older brother, so they had uh, their first son born in, in Romania. And, uh, ended up in the States. And I think like so many immigrants, they were really eager to assimilate. Uh, they really mm. wanted to be a part of the American story. And there's so much that resonated about America. That was in such a stark contrast to communist Romania and, and, many countries that are you know, still developing, right. Which is this idea that you can, uh, go from, from kind of poor and insecure to, to having your needs met fully in, in one generation, um, and I'm sure you've got a similar experience of And I think that's what makes America great. I mean, it's not without its faults, obviously, but there's the old Churchill quote of democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the other ones. I think the U S in many ways is the worst country in the world, except for all the other ones. Right. And, um, I think that the. Historical context of gratitude of you know being in a place where you can work hard and, and try to accomplish your goals uh, without having too much authoritarian intervention is, is something that's definitely stuck with me and, and I feel grateful for.
0: No, that, that's so true. You know uh, that's why I'm here as well. I moved to the US like ten years ago, uh, chasing the American dream. I'm still chasing. <laughs> I recently uh, got my O one visa. You know, which is like which was given to like, you know, top 1% folks, uh, in, in startups and tech, what you said is really true, which is, I think, uh, if I remember it right, JFK said this in America, anything is possible. So it's not, it's, it's, it's by default an abundant, uh, environment by, by, by nature, right? Like there are, there are, there are incredible people who are, who always try to like shoot stars and, uh, they try to like be ambitious, and that ambitiousness is kind of like contagious. And that's why you have to like, of course you have to surround yourselves with those folks. And, and I see a lot in you, in your journey as well. Like you kind of lived through the American dream, which is you've kind of built, you know, companies from ground up, from scratch. And you sold it to not just like any other brands, but they're like very big, very notable, Uh, brands like medium or Jiffy. So, uh, tell me about like, how, uh, how was your journey going from zero to one and later then from one to N?
1: So, so from zero to one in terms of on on a company building perspective.
0: Yeah. On a company building perspective or like your personal, uh, you know, hiring people working with like ambitious people, pushing yourself, uh, to, to make that mark, right? Like, uh, so how's, how's the journey look like for you?
1: Yeah. So let me caveat all this by saying, I feel really fortunate and very privileged to, to be in the position that I was in. Right. So I grew up in a very affluent area. Um, even though my parents ended up not having a lot of money when relatively certainly, um, uh, I got exposed to a lot of people who, who were very successful. and, mm. and I think that is a really unique, unfortunate situation, especially when they're young and the internet in many ways, democratizes that exposure, which is, which is great. Why we see more people leveling up mm-hmm. faster over the course of a lifetime, um, in terms of company building and going from zero to one, it's, uh, you know, I remember I went through an accelerator in Los Angeles. I actually worked in finance for a few years after college. And right. uh, that I, sort of the thing was I had a liberal arts education and I wanted to get some real practical skills. And I think finance is such a great underpinning of every business, right? Because even mm-hmm. at the end of the day, no matter how great your product is, you ultimately need to charge money. You need to make it find a way to make money for mm-hmm. your product. So, so I'm grateful that I got to work in finance and also... There was a nice paycheck and I was able to pay, pay off my student debt and uh, start directly actually investing at an earlier age too. So, right. um, but I left finance and and that was actually a really hard decision because at the time, you know, I was well paid and it felt kind of risky. Uh, it was, I was felt like I was on a very safe path. I was good at finance. I was working for a really prestigious private equity firm. And, mm-hmm. and I thought, well, you know what? Um, risk is actually subjective and I would felt I had the itch to go start something and I felt that if I didn't leave when I was young, it would be even harder for me to leave down the road. And So mm-hmm. it almost be a risk to not take the risk of trying something different than, <laughs> you know, that, thinking of that regret minimization framework, right? Of, of mm-hmm. how do you make a decision well on your deathbed? If you feel like you might want to be an entrepreneur and you don't try it, right. you might regret it. Um, yeah. And so, so I, I was able to, you know, take some savings and, and move down to LA um, to be close to family and, and fell into an accelerator. And
0: that's, mm-hmm. I,
1: I'm so grateful for, for the accelerator experience because you get put together in a cohort with a lot of other first-time founders. And it's just sure. like a grand school for thinking about company building. And that, that accelerator that I went through is called Mucker. Mm-hmm. The, the guys, two, two uh, individuals started it, uh, Will Sue and Eric Granola. And I'm still, still close with them and still consider them mentors. So I learned, you know, thinking about zero to one frameworks is first really understand what, what is a startup today and what's a venture back mm-hmm. startup, versus a bootstrap startup. And, uh, if you're, if you're going down the venture model, I think accelerators are so powerful for, for first time founders. So I'm, I'm going to dig know. in on more of the mechanics of it, but that's some high level context.
0: Yeah. So uh, I think I want to dive deeper into one thing which you said about, uh, Startup versus venture-backed startup, which is having like a venture-backed idea, and I think you all—all three of your companies—you know—you raised like twelve million dollars or more from you know one of the from some of the biggest uh, venture funds. How do you differentiate? And you're an investor by yourself, right? And how do you differentiate uh, a venture-backed idea versus like a bootstrapped? Say, for example, and what are what are some qualities you see?
1: Yeah, so generally. Venture investors are looking to back companies that can have outsized returns and can ideally return the size of their fund. Right. So mm. a quick rule of thumb is you want the a single investment to be paid to pay back your entire fund. So if you have a two hundred million dollar fund and you get twenty percent of a company, you need that company to be worth a billion dollars post dilution for you, mm. um, assuming you have twenty percent. Right. So basically pay back your entire your entire fund. So that's why a lot of, a lot of VCs are looking for companies that can be enormous. And this is why they'll often ask you about what's your total addressable market. Is it, mm. if it's not, if your market size isn't above a billion dollars, then it's really hard for you to build a business that is worth a billion dollars, obviously. Right. So that's, you know, venture capital really is specialty financing. It is financing for companies and entrepreneurs are trying to go build usually something that is for kind of rule of thumb, a billion dollars or more in value. Um, mm. And obviously, angel investors have a lower threshold because they have less capital that they're trying to return. Um, Whereas right. these huge monster funds like Sequoia and Andreessen Horowitz are really looking for those enduring generational companies that are going to drive outsized returns the Facebooks, the Pinterest, the Snapchats of the world. Um, right. And bootstrapping, I think, is amazing. Actually, the first company out of Mucker that I worked on with my co founder was, was largely bootstrapped.
0: Um, mm. uh, and, you know, I think
1: that there are real pros and cons to each path. Um, Mm. And one isn't, it really is a question of what, what do you want to learn about as an entrepreneur and where, where are you in your life cycle?
0: Um, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, You you said this to many times to me personally, when I asked for like advice about, Hey, what's the path about like going venture. (laughs) And you said many times, like don't, don't raise money if, if there is no need. Uh, why is that like, why, why did you felt, uh, that way and what, what kind of message you want to like, you know, pass on to listeners who are like either they're on the verge of fundraising or they just want to like, you know, they, they're just in the dilemma of, Hey, I'm, I I want to bootstrap or I want to like go raise venture.
1: Yeah. I think a lot of entrepreneurs confuse the means and the end of fundraising. Mm. Right. So what I mean by that is a lot of people think, oh, I need to go raise venture funding because that's what you do. That's a sign of success. And the reality is, is that what you're trying to do is build a company that you're proud of, that gives you a lot of purpose, that adds value to your customers and that, you know, you're able to derive value from economically, emotionally and, and all the other ways too. Right. So getting really clear as a founder of what you're trying to accomplish is very important. Um, and if you're, if you think, Hey, I've got this great idea but it's a niche business and the market is only $20 million. Well, that's clearly, you shouldn't raise venture money for that because mm. that's not going to be, it's not going to fit with what a venture capitalist wants to, to invest in ideally. Right? so you want to, you want to align your incentives with, with whoever your backers are. You also lose a lot of control over your company when you take on outside capital. Right? So, no. uh, the, the expectations go up dramatically once you take that first VC check, right? It's, Hey, I'm counting on you to try to go build that billion dollar company. And that, that's a lot of pressure. Uh, right. And it, is. Um, it can also lead to, to making almost irrational, uh, moves, right? You might say, Hey, hmm. you should be really thoughtful, and thoughtful about hiring. And you, I mean, we see this now, there's lots of layoffs happening at companies. That's because the, sure. the the fuel of venture capital is, you know, the the expectation of moving very quickly. Investors want to get, big returns as fast as possible. But that's not always right for every business. Some businesses just take longer and mature. Some businesses don't meet the criteria of addressable market. Some founders don't want to have that expectation and they really mm. have a lifestyle business. Those are all legitimate reasons to not take venture capital if you can.
0: Uh, I, wanna, I wanna like uh, dive a little deeper into the topic of handling pressure, right? Like for people, for founders, especially who raised money, uh, how do you how how did you handle before uh, when you were at Noble? Uh, at many many times, you kind of were very vocal about it as well on Twitter, sharing like your thoughts and being very transparent about it. Uh, you know, I, I saw many many of your threads resonate that, and you're you're big on habits too. So, what are some any tactics you've you've uh, gathered over time? Uh, now that you're like kind of a seasoned, seasoned entrepreneur of handling pressure stress uh, in general?
1: Yeah, I think being a founder is often glorified, right? The idea you get to be <laughs> your own boss, and set your own rules and set your own schedule. And right. the reality is every founder I know is, works extremely hard and it feels a lot of existential pressure, especially ones who have taken venture capital and feel, feel that mm-hmm. onus of delivering multiples of, of, of a return on their investor's capital. So, uh, one, anybody who's a founder out there I just want to normalize that it's really stressful and it often feels very lonely too. Um, Mm -hmm. because there is, there's systemic pressure to be really positive as a founder, right. To say like things are going awesome and we're crushing it. And, and it actually creates, uh, it's this prisoner's dilemma problem where everyone would be better off if everyone was just very honest about how they're doing, but, uh, because on a personal basis. You, you feel the motivation to like try to get that extra edge. There's pressure to just constantly say things are going great. And um, I actually think we connected because I, I posted a tweet at, after having done layoffs at Noble. Um, so Noble was was right. raised at C-Round from Andreessen Horowitz. And um, we thought that we had product market fit very early and we scaled the team to, to 10 people. And what we realized was we hadn't cracked customer acquisition fast enough. and right. And I, this is a separate learning, but you know, really thinking about growth for every product and, and what
0: your strategy mm. is from day one, I think, is very
1: important. Uh, but but I let go of half the team, and that was my—I I felt terrible, and, and I shared the experience on Twitter because I wanted to share the knowledge that I had learned about doing it, and, and hopefully help at least one other founder kind of avoid mm-hmm. the mistake of, of hiring um, because it's disruptive to the company is disruptive to the people who are affected to everybody. So, um, yeah, I think I lost the thread of the question, but, but,
0: uh, Yeah, uh, I feel, yeah, look. so for sure. I feel you, you, a founder needs to be very responsible, not for themselves, but for others too. And, you know, it's easy to like, I wouldn't say it's easy is the wrong word, but it's, it's actually more feasible to like bring more people, attract You know, great talent and be responsible in terms of vision. (laughs) And I think uh, some of the founders I see personally do that because they're just, like you said, they glorify a lot of things, missing the reality, and they live in their own bubble hype and uh, miss the whole point of why they're doing it, right? Uh, They miss the purity, sanity, and the clarity of building startups which is much more larger than anything else. Uh, yeah, you are you are telling something.
1: Yeah. Well, what I was going to say was I, I actually think that a founder has a responsibility to look after herself or himself. And that is a responsibility that a lot of founders overlook. And <laughs> the reality is, is that building a company, it's a marathon, right? You're really hmm. trying to build an entering company. Um, and many founders operate at an unsustainable level. Right. And I think there's a lot of hustle porn out there that is, is very detrimental to individuals uh, in the short term and companies in the long term. right. Where if a founder mm. doesn't make decisions from a place above the line, you know, if they're not well rested, if they're not thinking clearly uh, that's, that's harmful, not just to themselves, but to their employees and to their investors as well. And so I, something that I've done, I did, and I wish I would have done earlier in my career as, as a, Venture back founder was hire an executive coach. And historically, coaches were kind of a dirty word. It was somebody, you know, <laughs> if you were struggling as an entrepreneur, or as, a, as an right. executive, and you would have to get a coach. Your board would say, work with a coach. And I think that mentality is thankfully changing, which is people are realizing, well, top athletes
0: have coaches, right? Right. You know, yeah. Business people
1: or people who are trying to, to, to level up work with an outsider to help them grow. And, and that's something that I, you know, I got referred to a coach by a, by a friend who's a founder and, um, it's one of the best decisions I made at, for my career and, and for my company too.
0: Right. Yeah. You, know, uh, you, you've touched a great point there, which is, you know, it's okay to seek help. Uh, you can't do everything by your own. It's, you know, you just have to accept the reality. And a lot of people, either their ego comes in picture or something that stops them to except the fact that they can't do things alone, you know, and uh, and they can, they overburden themselves and burn out in many times. Uh, yeah. so I feel that there is a sense of, uh, I would say self-awareness, which I see a lot in you personally. Uh, you're very self-aware about your situations, your consequences, and you make right decisions. So let me ask you this, like, how did, how did you develop, uh, that, that philosophy or that mindset of, uh, making the right moves and being very self-aware, like where you are instead of going against, uh, you know, basically like fighting against like the norms, right? Like, uh, where'd you get that? Is it, is it from, uh, your parents or you adapted somewhere? You read books, want to know about, uh, your secret.
1: Yeah. I, I want to make sure I understand the question as a, that- Um, understanding how to think differently from a crowd. Is that what you're getting
0: at? I think it's more about like, how did you develop that self-awareness as a muscle? You know, a lot, a lot many people, let's take, take as an example, right? If you want to, uh, you know, you're you're in a situation of you have to lay, lay off people. That's like very awkward. You kind of welcome them to the team, but you have to make the right decision. That means you're self-aware of the current situation you're going through. And as a founder, it's really important self-awareness. At least to me, is the key foundational uh, quality in a founder being aware of you know what they are, how they want to like move in terms of market, product, customers, everything. Right? Like, so for you, uh, how did you develop that? Uh, any, yeah, you
1: know? it's a good question. I don't know that I, I have a definitive answer. I it probably has something to do with my childhood and feeling a little bit like an outsider. So.
0: Again, my parents
1: are from Eastern Europe, had thick accents, uh, <laughs> landed in one of the waffiest places possible, which was Newport Beach, California, in a place that was, you know, beyond our means, um, unfortunately. But we, I I often felt like an outsider in the group, because I was, was always thinking about how do I come across relative to, to my peers who may not be, be thinking about that as much. And so I think there are pros and cons to that. Uh, you can be, think too much. Um, and so I've tried always tried to find that balance over the course of my life. And I think as you get older, you you get better at it. Also reading is just such a, such an advantage. I mean, I love Mm. reading, uh,
0: memoirs and and biographies of people's lives and understanding the arc of Mm. life.
1: I think, you know, movies teach you a lot about like the hero's journey. Uh, and, and you see that playing out often with entrepreneurs as well. Right, where they start out, they, they don't know something, but they feel some call to, to a higher purpose, and um, they make mistakes along the way. Right? Like that is often part, one of the best ways to learn is to try, fail, and then try again.
0: Right. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, let's dive into uh, one, of, one of my favorite topics, kindness, and you know, being transparent and doing things in public in a very authentic way. Uh, I think you've tweeted this a while ago, you know, nice and kind are not the same. Nice is more of like short-term and kindness is more like long-term and it it kind of like, uh, helps you avoid the unpleasantness. So one understand, uh, how do you develop, how important is kindness to you as a founder? You know, as a person, you know, we can, we can talk about like other things, uh, given in the market where we are in, meaning like you said it's it's more of hustle people see uh you know a, a lot more about like you being very aggressive as a founder that a lot of people count that as a strength but truly to me kindness is a strength is is an invisible strength and it it goes a long way uh it goes for like years so how important kindness is to you as as a founder
1: yeah i think it's such a powerful distinction, this idea of nice versus kind and nice is really, as you said, is conflict avoidant, right? You're trying to just maybe you don't say the thing that you want to say because you want to avoid the short term unpleasantness and that's a detriment to everybody. So kind is often saying what addressing the elephant in the room. Right. And in startups that's really useful because speed and velocity really matter in startups. Right? Mm. So if, if i'm working with somebody and i'm disappointed with something that they did for a work project but i don't say it and i just say hey good job that's Mm. not that's maybe nice that's a nice thing to say good job but that's not kind because it's not fully honest right i'm not i'm not expressing what i what i feel and then that latent feeling Mm. bubbles up in other ways and other interactions or it's also not kind because there's no constructive feedback right there's no saying hey this doesn't meet the expectation. And here's a, here's a way that I think it could have been better. So kindness, uh, I agree is a strength, I think the, but it's, it's different than being nice. And, and I think the two are often confused.
0: You're, you're absolutely right. I think a lot of people, uh, especially when they, especially founders gathering feedback, uh, they have to eliminate nice people, honestly, (laughs) or else you just end up being, doing something that people don't want because a bunch of people are nice to you, which is, you know, which is like a bigger problem to solve versus, you know, I I personally feel kindness is such a, uh, such a tricky thing to do. You, you keep the honesty bar high at the same time you care about them. So you have to balance both. It's not being rude uh, it's, it's being upfront and caring about showing that care in a very honest way. So, uh, that's like,
1: when I think about the points to, just to, just to jump in and make it more clear for me is, you know, if somebody has food in their teeth, right. You can right. say, you could not tell them,
0: and right.
1: you know, I didn't want to be rude or you could say, Hey, you've got, I wanted to let, you know, you've got some food in your teeth. No big deal. It happens to me, uh, right. but just thought you should know. Right. And. Just that interaction. And it's kind of uncomfortable, right? to so acknowledge it and they feel a little bit awkward, but you can do it in a way that feels very graceful, right? right. Um, I often, if somebody has their teeth, I'll often just preface it by saying, <laughs> oh, I learned this great rule of thumb that if you know somebody's first name and they have food in their teeth, you should tell them if they have food in their teeth. So I know you've got it. <laughs> right? So like just finding some ways to be graceful about it, which right. is, there's a way to be kind without being rude or, or overly uh, uh, inconsiderate.
0: And kindness often, uh, is about doing the right thing in a very careful way, meaning like, you know, in a very empathetic way, in in a very, in a way that you are actually resonating with the other person, you're not, instead of, like you said, uh, you can either skip it or you can say something very bad and like, make them feel like terrible. So, uh, and uh, in startups, it's really, really important, you know, uh, I've I've dealt with a lot of kind people who just encouraged me when I was doing something absolutely wrong. And I've also dealt with people who really cared about me and you were one of them. Like when I was, you know, struggling with shout out, getting the users or, you know, uh, transitioning from my day job, you know, or like managing balancing day job, you were very kind. And you said, Hey, you know, take these three steps in mind, you know, keep these three, three steps in mind and you can, you can still do it. If you, if you balance both, uh, which is why I feel, uh, very less people are kind because it's difficult to manage the conversation, uh, in, in reality, you know, so let, let's dive into this, uh, you and I, we're both dads, you know, you have three kids, which is, yeah. I don't know wh- how you do it. <laughs>
1: very
0: lucky. Uh, uh, what's, 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 uh how you How's your life being a dad and a founder? And yeah. you know, a lot of other things.
1: Yeah, I have three kids who are under six. Uh, so anybody who's a parent knows that that's that's a lot. I think there's prior to becoming a parent, I had so little appreciation for just how much work it is to have kids and just how constant it is, right? It's I, you know, there were periods in my life where I didn't get a lot of sleep, but mm-hmm. you would then have a period where you could sleep, whereas with kids, Every morning, they're up at six o'clock, right? And they, <laughs> your yeah, right. Uh, so, look again. I'm I'm really fortunate. I I have a, a wonderful partner who's um, able to you know take some time off of her work and, and, and work part time and, and
0: take mm. the primary
1: role, right? So, it's, you know, I just want to acknowledge that privilege. Um, but when we first had our first kid, I really, I actually felt really concerned because I was a founder, yeah. Mm. I think there is this common ethos in, in the world and in tech in particular that you can't be productive and be a parent. And yep. And the reality is, is that I actually have found that being a parent has made me way more productive and way more efficient with my time.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: and it's also given me a much clearer sense of priorities because right. I really value the time that I have with my kids. And so I, I want to work on things that I believe are you know complementary to that desire and also, um, uh, doing things that would make my own kids proud as well. And then right. because you do have those deadlines of, I know a kid's got to, is going to wake me up at six o'clock. I know wake up at five so that I can get other stuff done before that happens. It's just <laughs> a real forcing function. And, and just you know, I, I find that deadlines really help and kids create a constraint for you that you work around and, and constraints often lead to a forcing function for innovation.
0: You're absolutely true on that front, which is, uh, I think I had the same worry when, when, you know, when we got to know about, uh, my wife being pregnant and we're expecting baby and like, what the fuck I, that, that time I was just transitioning into working at a fortune funded company at a very lazy laid back job to, you know, fast growing high attention, like high focus job in a, in a, in a a startup, at least a startup. So I was like very concerned. And frankly, I think it actually made me very organized. Yeah. And now I plan more, like two X more than I usually do in general for everything. Like every every day it's it's very scheduled, it's on time. And you have to do things without a without a heartbeat. Like you can't skip if like you said, you can't skip a morning meal. You have to be present there. So that means you have to do ten other things to make sure you're present with your kid. And in a way, like you said, the other thing I want to touch as well is they drive you insanely crazy in a good way, which (laughs) is uh, when I say drive you crazy, not about like, you know, the day-to-day activities. They drive you to be more ambitious and they drive you to dream more because you have to do better things for them, not for yourself anymore. So you, you kind of care about an external person and as a founder, as an operator, you you kind of like only you're in your lane, but not anymore. As if you become parent, you kind of, you know, stretch because you have a reason. Now you have a very strong reason now to do even more ambitious things. So that's why after, after Ruhan was born, my first kid, I've, I did like hell a lot of more things than before. <laughs> And it's it's all about it's it's all because of him, to be honest.
1: Yeah, I I found the same to be true. And again, I think it's a forcing function. You know, it's really easy. A lot, of, I think, a lot of going back to the, kind of the hustle porn culture, you see a lot of people saying they're working hundred hour weeks, but they been spending half kind of it reading TechCrunch. You know, and there's just a lot of lost mm-hmm. time in a day, especially when you're young and don't don't have that forcing constraint. Uh, and so you find ways to become more efficient and effective. Also, I think being a parent. Increases your empathy, and I think it helps right. you as a manager too of other people yeah. and resources. Right? I mean, just if anyone had to negotiate with a toddler, it's really intense. You uh, learn
0: <laughs>
1: really great communication skills negotiation <laughs> skill. so think, and negotiation skills. So
0: I think it's
1: really a lot of relevant experience
0: and patience. That too, that is a, an amazing quality. They they kind of help you adapt. Uh, Warren, it seems like you should. You're on a you're on a great either, either a medium article or a great Twitter thread, like a, pa- a quality of a parent can translate into a quality of a founder. That's a great idea for you. <laughs> oh, yeah, thanks. I mean, I do think that having a startup is kind of like having a baby, um, you know, you, you know, you do feel like you get enough attention
1: and and it always wants more and you want, you want what's best for it. Um, and you feel a lot of responsibility for it.
0: Absolutely. I do have a last question before I d- dive into another, uh, very funny section, you know, which we'll talk in, in a few minutes. And this question is about, like, ambitious people. You've worked with uh, incredibly ambitious people. Like, take Chris Paul, the NBA superstar. Take Alexis Ohanian or, you know, Scott Kelly. Th- these were some of the collaborations you made at Noble. How was your experience working with them and any key lessons uh, you learned uh, in their, you know, in a day-to-day life or their how do they think and whatnot?
1: A couple of things come to mind. One is everyone's figuring it out as they go,
0: right? And mm. I think that's,
1: it's really easy to have this mythology of a person. Uh, but the reality is, is that they're still just, they're humans. And they have the same mm. 24 hours that everyone else does. So just re- remembering that um, uh, is, is important. Um, but again, I, I do think that, being exposed to people who are at the top of their game and learning from them firsthand is such a, such a advantage and such a fortunate thing.
0: Um, I'm
1: a big fan of all three of those people that you mentioned, you know, and they, they led courses for knowable. Um, Alexis was was also an investor in Mm -hmm. in knowable and I mean, he's just a really impressive, caring, thoughtful person who's also a parent and doing incredible things. Um, and many things too. So, you know, it's it's great to work, to get to hang out with people who are at the top of their game because you learn a lot from them and seeing their habits. But you also learn that they're just people too and they make mistakes right. and uh, they're, they're still trying to be better and grow just mm-hmm. like we are. And everyone's on their own trajectories.
0: Yeah, uh, definitely. I think that's uh, such an important uh, lesson I keep very really close to my heart your heroes are still figuring out just like yourself <laughs> there. There may be like hundred steps ahead of you, but they're in the same boat. They're just like, you know, they have their own problems. Like you have your own, uh, yeah. no, that's amazing. Uh, any, any key takeaways, uh, meaning something you've kind of discovered after working with them that you've thought like, wow, I should have learned this years before.
1: Um something I've noticed about high performers is they're generally really quick on replying to things. They just get mm. stuff off their plate really quickly. So they have just a lot of momentum. And I actually learned this tip from Alexis. He was describing when he, he's one of the co-founders of Reddit. And in the early days, you know, the email box would fill up. And he has right. this tip which is just reply to the most recent email first, because at least mm. that person will think like, Wow, this person this founder <laughs> is incredible. Lightning fast, and then work your way backwards. So it's actually a last-in, first-out order of of responding to emails. Something that stuck with me. Um, Love that. Get back, get back at least on top with some people.
0: Love that. Awesome. Yeah, Uh, that's an amazing tip for sure. I see why he's he did that. You know, people people really appreciate uh, immediate responses and immediate attention, especially you're a founder serving a customer. Love that. So I have this, uh, very, uh, authentic section. I call rapid fire five, where I just ask like five quick questions. You know, what are that comes top of your mind? Just, you know, shoot it out. Uh, you mentioned before about you, you're a big fan of reading biographies, memoirs. What's your all time favorite?
1: I recently read the autobiography of Ben Franklin. and yeah. Nice. Really? I mean, he was just ahead of his time. He would have been, he would have crushed it on Twitter. I think he was basically (laughs) intermittent fasting, waking up early, uh, having, building habits. Uh, he was a vegetarian. He actually started the first newsletter. I think he has basically invented Substack before. (laughs) Love
0: that. Wow. I should, I should read that for sure. Thanks for that suggestion. Yeah. So question two, if you were to invest in a company today, you know, what would that be?
1: Uh, I actually got this advice from Gary T and I asked him what, what some of his best investments have been. Um, Gary is now the the president of of Y Combinator and, Mm -hmm. uh, previously was the co-founder of initialized capital. And his, his point was you want a huge market and great margins. And mm. um, ideally you both, right? And so again, venture investing is so much about power loss and these outsized returns. Mm-hmm. So those are two things. I mean, you know, finding a company that already has traction, but where the price is right is the sweet spot, right? So that's, right. it's not overvalued, but you can clearly see that there's a path to, to exponential growth. is um, exciting. Are you looking for a specific company?
0: Yeah, I would, I would love to hear uh, what's, what's in your mind? Like what companies are you looking at right now?
1: Um, you know, I just started working with, uh, with first round, they have a program called angel track. I feel really lucky. I was, I was one of the people selected to, to participate in that. And so nice. they, uh, they, they kind of train you up on best practices for, for angel investing. Um, yeah. and, there's, there's so many great companies out there and I actually, I don't have one specific company that comes to mind. Um, just, just yet. I think there's different stages. Um, obviously I think AI is a really interesting space. A friend of mine mm-hmm. is from from is named, uh, may Habib, and she started a company called writer.com and, uh, well. that's, that's a founder who I think is just incredible and uh, in the right space at the right time. Um, so they're kind of like an enterprise focused grammarly, and uh, I would well,
0: definitely invest be company. Awesome. So this is another cliche question, which I have to ask because you have such a, you've gathered such a wisdom. Uh, if you were to go back 10 years before you did everything, like all three startups, what's one thing you will change and why?
1: Uh, buy more Apple stock. Um, <laughs> buy Bitcoin and then sell it at the right time. <laughs> uh i you know i tend to think that things just happen for a reason and and setbacks are often just the best Mm. way to learn so i i don't know i i wouldn't change anything i don't know how it would affect the multiverse um so i'll just leave it leave it as is
0: (laughs) nice uh what's your favorite uh pastime with your kids
1: uh, reading. Uh, my daughter is now old enough to where we can read chapter books, and it's so fun oh. uh, because the the writing is, you know, interesting, and, and it isn't just one sentence uh, words with pictures or or, or pages with pictures. Um, so that's been that's been really fun. We're uh, reading a book that is like the alternative Harry Potter series. And uh, oh I'm
0: wow, yeah. do you read like uh, at bedtime or uh, just like? You know, some, whenever, whenever you get time with her.
1: Yeah. It's usually bedtime. That's just part of the, the bedtime routine.
0: Nice, nice. Yeah. Ruhan started, we, we, he loves book books for some reason. I don't know why, because of the pictures or whatever it is. Sure. And he recently started pointing out to sentences in a book and mm. he signals me like, Hey, read this. So I I hope like, you know, he, he loves uh, books when he grow up to, uh, I love that. Last, last yes. question. Yeah, he's go like ahead. Old. How old is he? He's uh 15 months. He just turned yeah. 15. So he's, he's learning quick, which is like very surprising to me. <laughs> uh, the last question about like same, same, uh, same zone about books. What, what are you reading right now? We want to like recommend to listeners.
1: Sure. Um, Let's see, a book that was recommended to me me by Ev, who's the founder of of Twitter and the the, Mm -hmm. uh, founder of EDM that I really enjoyed. is called Good Strategy, Bad Strategy. And I think a lot of people use the word strategy. Very few people know what it actually means. (laughs) Uh, The the thrust of this book, the TLDR, is uh, people often confuse having goals with having
0: a strategy. Right, right
1: double revenue in the next 12 months. And that's a goal. That's not a strategy, right? So strategy mm-hmm. really is what's the plan? How do you actually use your competitive advantages to achieve your goals? Uh, so that's mm-hmm. that's been really great. Um, I actually, I really like reading fiction, um, and, and short mm-hmm. stories at the time. I think that fiction gives you a glimpse into interiority of people, right? I think mm-hmm. we kind of lose that today with just, with a lot of video consumption and nonfiction consumption, you, you, you don't get to hear like, Oh, here's how other people think about things inside their heads. Right. Right. Um, So I, I'm reading a book of short stories by this guy, Edgar Carrot, um, which is really good. And uh, also reading this book called the outsiders, which is about um, some of the highest performing CEOs of all time. And it's, it's often people who really thought, about shareholder value, right?
0: And
1: not Mm. not necessarily building the biggest companies, but actually just building the best companies for, for maximizing margins. So that's good
0: too. Love that. Love that. I'm going to include all those recommendations in the show notes. Uh, Let me tell you this, Warren, this has been great. You know, it's, it's one of the, one of the most authentic conversations I ever had in my podcast. And thanks being, thanks for being you yourself, you know, uh, and delivering such a, such a high quality, uh, answers, which I hope like listeners are going to like take advantage of. So thank you so much for, for being on the show and where, sh- where, where can people find you if you want to like, you know, close out, uh, with, with, with some comments.
1: Well, my, my pleasure. Shara. Thank you for asking such thoughtful questions. And again, I'm, I'm such a fan of yours and excited to see this podcast grow. And, uh, and I enjoyed listening to, to some of the others that you've had on the podcast so far. And I know that, you I know, mean, continue to deliver a lot of value to your listeners. Um, So thanks for having me. In terms of where people can find me, Twitter is the best place. Uh, Mm. My handle is at WWshaef,
0: Awesome. That's it, guys. Uh, Thanks for tuning in again. uh, We will wrap this up uh, on a high note here. We'll see you next time.